Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from Psalm 86, verses 1 through 7 and verses 14 through 17. The text will be on the screen as I read. Hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I'm in distress, I call to you because you answer me. Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. They have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning, Trinity City Church. Welcome. Uh, my name is Greg. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. And uh, if you have a kid uh, who goes to Sunday school uh, or kids' church, whatever, it's, whatever we call it, what do we call it? I don't know. Uh, you can bring them there now. Um, today uh, uh, is August 6th, which means it's my son's birthday, my eldest son Bennett's birthday is today. Um, and uh, he is really looking forward to going to GameStop after church with his grandmother. And so this sermon is going to be 105 minutes long. Uh, no. I won't, I won't draw out his agony too far. We'll just, we'll just call it a, a, solid, a solid 30, hopefully. Um, <clears throat> today we're continuing our, our series, Summer in the Psalms. Uh, and today we're looking at Psalm 86. Uh, as Nick read, uh, it's a psalm that is a, a psalm of lament that we call it. Uh, so there's various categories of the psalms you're probably aware of. Some are praise psalms, some are uh, 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 corporate laments. This is an individual lament psalm. Uh, laments are made up generally of uh, descriptions of distress. Uh, the, the psalmist will sometimes talk about, maybe in vague terms, but sometimes specifically uh, what they're going through. Uh, and then there's just petitions, cries for help, cries for rescue that the psalmist wants, uh, that wants to be delivered uh, from, 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 his, from his distress. Psalm 86, if you have a Bible, uh, uh, right above verse 1, there's these super, little superscripts, you know, that they kind of say what, who the author of the psalm is sometimes. This psalm says it's a prayer of David, a prayer of David. Now, there are a few interesting things about this particular psalm. This is the only psalm, the, the, the only psalm of David in the third book of the psalms. Uh, the psalms in our Bible is broken up into five books, and if you look there, this, this is the only David psalm in book, in book three. 
The inter the besides that, <clears throat> besides that, uh, the other interesting thing about it is that it is a, a, a kind of a, a a really familiar song psalm in that so much of the phrases, the language, is actually taken from other psalms. So if you looked at your study Bible and looked at your cross-references and all that, you'd see that most of the language here is actually uh, taken from other David psalms. And so lots of people, when they go into thinking about what this psalm is, who composed it, where did it come from, they'll kind of say, well, the author, maybe it's not David, in fact, but the author actually just kind of uh, sampled from David's greatest hits, as it were, and kind of organized them together into this, uh, into this psalm. Uh, so, is David the author of the psalm, or is he not the author of the psalm? Well, yes, he probably is in the sense that it's his material, but somebody later on was like, you know what, let me just move it in this or that direction and put it together in a little bit different way. So, David is the author, uh, in one sense, but probably, uh, probably some later editor composed it uh, into more of a, a formulaic psalm. That formulaic nature to this psalm makes it uh, good, a good paradigm for us, for, for communities to read, for people to read and to, and to, and to make their own, as it were. Now, <clears throat> so far, uh, if you're, so far what I've been doing in describing the authorship and origin of the psalm uh, I'm not super excited about that. <laughs> um, what I've been saying is uh, these are more historical issues. Uh, we're talking about uh, what the psalm means, what David uh, said it means, who composed it, um, who was the original audience of the psalm. Was the audience uh, post-exilic Israel or pre-exilic Israel? And then you can get into all these historical settings and questions, and they're really interesting and informative questions. And I don't want to minimize those things in any way. But at the same time, uh, if you understand all of those things about the psalm, uh, you probably yet haven't really understood the psalm. <clears throat> so, um, I want to kind of juxtapose two ways of reading the psalms, and then I'm going to add a third later on. Uh, the first one is this, what I've been talking about, this historical mode or historical approach of reading the psalm. In this sense, you're sort of digging up historical facts, data, and kind of filling out all that stuff sort of behind the psalm, the history that gave rise to the, to the psalm. The other, the other mode that I want to talk about is what I'm going to call just the psychological mode, the way that sometimes we read the psalms. We don't read them, especially ones like this, in historical ways. We just read it immediately as our own words. We just read it and think, this is my voice speaking. These are my words talking. So, I'm going to call those the historical and the psychological ways of reading the Psalms. <clears throat> For the psychological way of reading, like I mentioned, the history behind the text is unimportant. It doesn't matter that David said this or that some other guy said this. What matters is it's my voice speaking in the psalm. And you can think of these two different ways on a, on a sort of spectrum. There's the historical mode or approach where you're kind of looking for the meaning of the psalm sort of back there in history. The meaning is what David said it was or what the original audience heard it to be, and that's where the meaning is. And then on the psychological way of reading, 
the meaning is uh, immediate. There's no distance from what the psalm meant back there to what it means for you right now in your particular context or experience. So that spectrum, if we push in both directions, there are extremes in both directions. And I want to be clear that both these ways of thinking about the psalms or reading the psalms is, is okay. Uh, they're, not, uh, they're not mutually exclusive from each other. Most of us are probably fall somewhere in between that. So, uh, I think that we can read, and we do read most other pieces of uh, art or poems or music in these sorts of ways. Um, and I just want to make a quick example, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to use my wife for this example, so, don't, don't, so hopefully she doesn't take offense. But um, my wife, uh, uh, like many in her demographic, has become uh, an acolyte of Taylor Swift recent years. Um, uh, an acolyte, a follower, someone who uh, likes Taylor Swift's music a lot. And, um, you know, there's something about Taylor Swift's music that really resonates, or whatever, you don't have to think of Taylor, you, just whatever music or art you, that resonates with you, uh, there's something about it, something very personal about it. And so when, when, when my wife, when she sort of identifies with the lyrics of Taylor Swift or something, and, you know, it's not, it's not Taylor's words anymore, it's her experience. She's feeling the experience, and Taylor's just giving expression to what she feels, which worries me a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but... That's, that's another story. We'll put that, we'll put that back up. So, uh, uh, so there's that, right? There's that. You can, you can listen to, to, to art uh, or music like that. And then, and then, and I don't know why this happened, but as Kim, uh, she was never a Taylor Swift fan when I married her, uh, but, uh, but when, 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 uh, when she got into her, you know, in the last few years, she started listening to the back catalog of Taylor Swift stuff, right? Uh, and... And all of a sudden, she started collecting all these little details about her life and data about Taylor Swift and information that she will share with me, and I will nod my head and say, I don't care. I don't care what this song is about. I don't care who she's talking about in this breakup song, right? I don't care. But for her and for maybe other people, that sort of background to a piece of art really gives it a lot of meaning, right? Or, as uh, another person in this room has told me, uh, Taylor Swift basically bought her way into being famous, so that might influence how I think about Taylor Swift's art, too, right? <laughs> anyway, so it could go either way. It could deepen your appreciation or it could, like, sour you to, to the artist, right? But you can see my point, I hope, is that there's a way of thinking about that music or a poem or a psalm psychologically, immediately, and then there's a way of thinking about it in terms of history, background, what gave rise to it. <clears throat> um, uh, for, uh, for, for our purposes, when we're looking at Psalm 86 and psalms in general, I think, I want to suggest that there's another way of reading the psalms besides just that historical mode and that psychological mode. There is sort of another layer, there's another voice in the psalms that I think we should attend to if we're going to understand the meaning of the psalms uh, or what they're intended to mean from, from God. So, I think that, and this is controversial in some quarters, even with Christians, that there is the voice of Christ in the Psalms, that, uh, that He does speak there, and that we should attend to that voice. So, 
Um, <clears throat> sometimes this is called uh, academically a Christological reading of the Psalms, if you want to think of it that way. We're looking at it historically, psychologically, and now thinking of it Christologically. Where is the voice of Christ? Where is the presence of Christ in the Psalm? And so, uh, this is uh, controversial for many reasons, but let me just give a quick <clears throat> reason why I think we should read the Psalms this way, and then one example as well. So in Luke tw chapter 24, uh, if you remember in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is uh, post-resurrection, talking to his disciples, teaching them, and he says in Luke 24, 44, uh, uh, this is a quotation from that, from that verse, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Everything that is, uh, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, Jesus' claim here seems pretty bold. Like, what do you mean everything must be, must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, right? And, and what he's saying there is that everything in the Old Testament, everything in the, the Hebrew Bible, uh, is sort of about him in some way. And so Christians through the ages have then looked into the Old Testament and then to find, well, where is Jesus in the Old Testament? So, a quick example of this. Uh, psalm 22, probably a more familiar psalm to us from the Gospels. You'll remember, it's a psalm of David as well. David says, you have pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, they cast lots for my garment, right? And these words, this, whatever happened, I don't think David's hands and feet were really pierced. Maybe, maybe they were, but it's probably a hyperbole for him. Uh, uh, Will the gospel writers latch onto that? And they say, well, that's not really about, about David. That's, that's something that happens in actuality with Christ. That's something that happens there on the cross or when he's going to his crucifixion. So we can see the gospel writers, as they look back at the Old Testament and look at the Psalms in particular, they see in them uh, the events that surround Christ, uh, Christ's coming, death, and resurrection. So, we come now to another Psalm of David, Psalm 86. <clears throat> and as we go through Psalm 86, I want to make five uh, quick points, for my son's sake. Five points uh, that go through the Psalm uh, and sort of uh, with a, what I'll call a, a Christ, a Christological reading to them. So, kind of thinking about, okay, reading historically, reading psychologically, and then reading Christologically, that this other layer to reading the Psalms. So first, the first point, Christ is, Christ is the faithful servant. Christ is the faithful servant. Um, verses 1 to 4, I'll read those for us. <clears throat> 1 to 4 say, say uh, hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring, your joy, bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I, have, for, for I put my trust in you. So historically, uh, uh, we have, this, we have this, this idea of the poor and needy. Hear me, Lord, for I am poor and needy. And, and when we think about that in historical terms, like, okay, this is a psalm of David. If this is David's, David's voice, David's the king of Israel. He seemed pretty wealthy. He didn't seem very poor, right? Uh, but I'm sure he had some downtimes in his life. He did hide in a cave from his son who was trying to kill him for a little while. But other than that, he's a pretty wealthy person. So what is he talking about when he's poor and needy, right? 
Uh, he's poor and needy, probably in soul and spirit, that he recognizes that within himself he doesn't have the resources to take care of what he needs to resource, take care of what he needs to. Uh, he's a limited human being in that sense. So he recognizes his limitation. And we, as we read the Psalms, uh, personally and psychologically in our way, uh, we immediately recognize that. I think, I think most of us, probably who most of us are Christians here who come to that, we, well, the reason why we're Christians is because we realize we're poor and needy, right? We realize, <clears throat> excuse me, we realize that we can't, we can't uh, uh, do it ourselves. We are limited and creaturely people. Then we read the next, uh, uh, the next verse, verse 2. Guard my life, for I am faithful to you, right? And most of us, most of us, if you have an ounce of humility in you, will sort of balk at that, excuse me, balk at that saying, right? You, you're just kind of thinking, wait a minute, I, I don't know if I would pray. I don't know, excuse me. <clears throat> I don't know if I would pray like that. I don't know if I would pray and say, I am faithful, right? All right, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. But you guys know me, most of you, so anyway. So I don't know if I would pray that way. I don't know if I would be that confident in my prayer to God. Um, And then you think, okay, that's kind of how I would think. So I'd distance myself maybe from the reading of the psalm that way. And then uh, David says it. He says, that's what he says. And then you're thinking to yourself, yeah, David says He's faithful. So it's more of a historical reading I'm going to take when I read that part. And then you think to yourself, David? <laughs> Thanks, Maureen. I appreciate that. Um, David? Really? Um, David was faithful? I mean, he had some pretty high highs, let's admit it. He, was, he, was, he wrote some amazing lyrics. He's an amazing, amazing uh, uh, man in many ways. But he also had some pretty low lows, right? How can he claim that he is faithful to God and that God should guard his life because of that? So David is speaking, I think, aspirationally, aspirationally. And so are we in many ways if we pray that. We're speaking sort of aspirationally. We want to be faithful. Uh, But there is one who does not speak these words aspirationally, right? And, and this is the Christological meaning, that Christ doesn't speak these words aspirationally. He speaks them truly. Uh, he, is, he is the, uh, he, excuse me, <clears throat> he is really faithful to God. Uh, he is the true, uh, he is the faithful servant. All right, secondly, uh, verses uh, 5 to 7, Christ is, uh, Christ is the true human. Verse 5, 5 to 7. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to me for my, for my cry to mercy. When I am in distress, I call to you because you answer me. So Christ is the true human. Uh, David, like me and like you, is human, and he faces distress. And this, this verses talk about David's distress, the distress he's in, not in particulars, but mention, but mention that he is distressed. And we all recognize at various points in our life that we are distressed. Christ, Christ, uh, is, uh, uh, Christ embraced what it means to be human even in those moments. So he embraced human. He chose to become human uh, and to face the distress of humanity, uh, even the distress of death. So Christ knows what it's like to suffer and to die. 
Um, and perhaps more poignantly than anywhere else in the Gospels, we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays to the Father, if, if you're willing, take this cup from me. And from his very human will, from his very human will, he decides to obey uh, the Father. He, he acts truly as a human to obey God. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, 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 this sort of reference in the Garden of Gethsemane is a, is a reference is another garden previously, the Garden of Adam uh, and Eve, the Garden of Eden, where a test takes place and where those, uh, those first humans, Adam, uh, do not obey God. They do not, oh, with from their humanity, listen to Him, but rather rebel. Christ, in this sense, is the true human. My third point is that Christ is the true God. And this comes, I think, in verses uh, 8 to 10. Christ is the true God. David says, Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made, they will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring, they will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Uh, there is only one God, and the psalmist here is, is reaffirming the basic tenet of Israel's religion, of ancient Israel, that there is one God, that, that, that the gods of the nations are really nothing, that the Lord God is the only God. And David confesses this, the later psalmist confessed this, Israel confesses it, and Jesus confesses this as well. Jesus confesses this, that there is one God. In his ministry, uh, in his ministry, Christ reveals his identity, though, as that one God, which is uh, paradoxical in many ways. Uh, in his ministry, he does uh, what the psalmist says, these great and marvelous deeds, right? We see him heal the sick, uh, uh, give sight to the blind, all these miracles calming the storms, and these miracles speak to his divine identity. <clears throat> in the gospel of, or excuse me, earlier in the psalm, uh, the psalmist calls Jesus, or calls God good. You are forgiving and good. Uh, and this idea of goodness uh, comes up uh, in Mark chapter 10. Uh, Jesus is interacting with, <clears throat> I think, the rich young ruler at this point or someone. He runs up to him, falls at his feet, and says, Good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And so Jesus uh, uh, is going to answer his question, but before Jesus answers his question, he kind of says, Hold on a minute, why do you call me? Hold on a minute, why do you call me good, right? Why do you call me good? Uh, it's kind of this minor point. It's like, well, out of the blue, right? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. And then he just sort of moves on, right? It's kind of, it's kind of just weird. But this is kind of how the gospel of Mark works. Mark just kind of drops in these things, and then he expects you to kind of get the meaning. It's very subtle. But what, what, what Christ is doing, why it's included there, is to think that God is, God is good. And Jesus is saying, yeah, uh, you're calling me good, but you don't, you don't even know You, you don't even know how, you know what I mean. All right. 
You know what I mean? All right. So Jesus is the true God. He takes that, takes that, uh, that, that idea of goodness for himself. Mm-hmm. Okay, fourthly, Christ is the resurrection. Christ is the resurrection. And this comes from verses uh, 11 through 13. Christ is the resurrection. Uh, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart, for I I will glorify your name forever. Uh, For great is your love toward toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Uh, historically, uh, David uh, uh, knows, and maybe we can, we can understand this now from him, David knows that, that his faithfulness and trust do not come from within himself, right? He pleads to God. He says, God, you, you need to unite my heart or give me an undivided heart. And immediately, we sort of resonate with that as well too, right? Uh, we need God to give us... To give us united hearts, to give us uh, undivided hearts to serve and obey Him. Um, <clears throat> many people have struggled with this tension throughout uh, church history, and uh, because uh, Augustine was mentioned last week, uh, I'll mention him again today. Uh, St. Augustine, who's writing in the fourth century, uh, uh, brings out this, uh, this tension in, in his famous book on, called The Confessions, and he's praying to God and he's saying, uh, in, the, in this God, and there's this line that is particularly controversial in his day, and it is in ours. He says, uh, he's praying to God, uh, Lord, uh, give what you command and command what you, or give what you command and, and command what you will. Give what you command and command what you will. Uh, what Augustine is expressing in that line is the tension that we feel in this psalm here. And that is the tension we all feel in our lives, especially as Christians. And that tension is that we ought to obey the command of God, but in ourselves we don't have the power to obey. We are divided. Our desires are divided, our wills are divided, uh, and we are prone towards sin. Uh, uh, We need help. And this is David's cry, this is Augustine's cry, this is our cry as well. Uh, we need our hearts to be lifted up. We need, uh, we, need our, excuse me, we need our desires to be raised from the dead. So in commenting on Psalm 86, Augustine says this, the heart is not raised, uh, the heart is not raised as the body is raised. When the body is lifted up, it changes its place. When the heart is lifted up, it changes its will. Though standing, excuse me, though standing on earth, you are in heaven if you love God. The resurrection of your heart, the resurrection of your heart has commenced if you have begun to love God. That is, if your will towards God has changed. And we love God because he first loved us. When David says in that psalm, in, in a verse, uh, let's see, verse, uh, verse 13, when he says, uh, 
great is your love toward me, I immediately think of Christ's baptism, where Christ is being baptized and the sky is open, uh, and, uh, and the voice of the Lord says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Uh, we know that uh, God loves Christ, uh, and we know that from the revelation that, that comes uh, from him in, in his baptism. When David continues on in the psalm, in the next verse, he says, you have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead, right? So this language of being delivered from death. Now, presumably, David or the psalmist was still alive as they penned these words, I'm guessing, and you and I are still alive when we read those words. So who are these words, re- who are, who are these words really fulfilled in? Uh, who are... <clears throat> Uh, for Christ, these words are, he's, or, or Christ, he speaks these words truly as one who was really raised from the realm of the dead. So, Christ is, in this sense, the resurrection. And my last point, finally, Christ is the sign of God's goodness, the sign of God's goodness. Verses 14 to 17 read, Arrogant foes are attacking me, O God. Ruthless people are trying to kill me, but they have no regard for you. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you, just as my mother did. Give me a sign of your goodness, that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Christ is the sign of God's goodness. The psalmist David here, he asks God to give him a sign of his goodness. And then he goes on to say, or, or prior to that, he's, he quotes uh, Exodus chapter 36. And there's that very familiar language there. You probably heard it elsewhere in the Psalms, but also maybe in Exodus, that the Lord is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. That very familiar line from Exodus chapter 34. And then uh, David talks about giving me a sign of your goodness, right? And so because of the context of Exodus, Exodus 34, and this then plea for a sign of your goodness, we see the context of Exodus 33, the, verse, the, the chapter before 34, we have this moment where uh, Moses is asking for a sign. And Moses is asking to see God's glory in particular. And so in Exodus 33, Moses asks to see God's glory, and God responds to him and says, uh, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, uh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But you... But you cannot see my face. Uh, for, for, no one, for no one may see my face, see me and live. All right. Uh, Christologically, Christ is the goodness of God that has appeared in the flesh. And in this sense, he is uh, the sign of God's goodness. Uh, He says in the Gospel of John, excuse me, uh, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
And David, as David looked back on the revelation of God to Moses in the Exodus, as he looked back and saw God revealed there in Sinai and affirms that, so we too look back to the God revealed in Jesus Christ and we trust, uh, and we trust in him and his revelation for us. So, in this sense, Christ is the sign of God's goodness. Excuse me. All right. So I'm done now.